Welcome to the Serpent Sales Podcast. This week, we are talking to Vlad Karukas, who is the popcorn salesman turned enterprise seller. I'm pretty excited about this, Richard, mostly because I haven't had a good popcorn in quite a while. And uh, I'm here with my good friend and world champion mudslide drinker, Richard Harris. How's it going, Richard? It is going well, my friend. I still think you need a B12 shot. You still sound very tired at the moment after your debauchery this weekend, but I, I'm excited here to talk to Vlad um, and also wanted to let people know uh, we've got the Serpent Sales Founder Edition coming up in October uh, for founders only. That's going to be in Texas at Scott Lisa's Lake House, so it'll be a good time. And of course, we always have Serpent Sales happening in November, two back-to-back sessions. Feel free to check uh, SerpentSales.com and SerpentSales.com slash Texas for the Founders Only event. So we want to thank also our sponsors of Outreach, Sendoso, and Scratchpad. Really appreciate all that they're doing to support us in the Surf and Sales community and the sales community. Uh, so Scott, I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks for joining us. We've got a killer episode coming up with Vlad Karukas after this. talking with an old friend not that he's super old just meaning that been friends with him for a while now bonded over thursday night sales as well as our love for liverpool fc and uh it's vlad karukas from uh rockwell automation where he works as a sales executive at the moment what's going on vlad hey guys great to be here love to see you scott I, scott like i need to give you a vitamin b12 shot or something dude you are like dragging i can tell i am well yeah. I'm, I'm i'm trying to power through i thought i was actually doing very good so thanks for shattering my confidence in the first oh, right because that's oh, what yeah, i, I have that much power over you appreciate that so much vlad tell everybody uh a little bit about you know the the, the work that you do specifically like what type of sale is it at rockwell automation is it enterprise sale is it smb give us some context for what you do so my, my camera keeps blurring, uh, so I gotta turn it back on, off and on. We're good. Yeah, um, I'm a sales executive for information solutions, selling to industrial manufacturing companies. Think of big, um, you know, in my territory in Western Canada, it's mainly oil and gas companies, mining companies, and um, lumber companies. So typically. I, I would say it's definitely an enterprise sale if if you put it in a in a certain category. Okay. Um, so are you working most of these deals bottoms up, tops down? How are you breaking into some of these big enterprise deals? That's a, an excellent question, Scott. And uh, I think it's still, I mean, I, I've only been with the company for the last uh, eight months, right? So I'm still learning and it's... Uh, quite a quite an experience so we have a lot of solutions that we can offer so meaning it's not just a single point solution that you see typically you know a lot of startups do but it's a it's a portfolio it's a whole portfolio of products that or solutions that um i need to be aware of and need to be able to position in front of my customers so it it actually a combination of both uh top down bottom up because you need to understand the customer before I would go to any exec and try to get them on the phone, I need to understand what the company strategic objectives are, 
what are they doing or not doing today that can help them in the future. So really, without, without understanding of all of these details, at least at a high level, you can't have a conversation with exact. I mean, these people are making, you know, millions of dollars a year in salary, and that half an hour of that time is worth a lot of money. So they're not going to spend time with somebody who doesn't know what uh, what company struggles are, yeah. or what company challenges are. So let's so let's talk about that in a little bit of detail, and then I'll let Richard chime in. What are some of your go-to places to? learn this information on 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 your own so you don't have to ask them well typical typical places people would go i would start typically with yahoo finance if it's a public company just to get a little bit of a rundown on you know what their financials are and how their um you know what their last year revenue was i would look at, into their corporate uh, reports annual reports 10ks uh quarterly reports I would, um, but but the biggest source of information for me or for us here at Rockwell is really account management team because our role as sales execs, it's an overlay role on top of whatever other activities that our account managers do. And again, Rockwell Automation being a, uh, a an old traditional company that has been around for more than 100 years, it has a lot of solutions to offer, including the core business, which is hardware sales, right? So all they think of PLC, uh, medium voltage drives, and, and a lot of other things that come to that. And, and so our account managers know the account really well. So when we come to them, they can introduce us to the right people to talk about information solutions or software that we are selling. So I would say those Three and then also just doing you know LinkedIn Navigator, LinkedIn search, Google search, Google alerts, all of these things. So it, it it really takes a lot of time. So it's not something you can pull off in in five minutes. How do you? I'm gonna ask just for, again for context. You've been there eight months. What's your average sales cycle like? If you're allowed to share, and and what's your average contract price? Because I think that people love to hear enterprise. And then some people's definition of enterprise is not a legit definition of enterprise. I don't have enough data points to be able to answer that question, Richard, to be honest. Because okay. it's really depends on the customer. It really depends on the solution that we are selling. Some some solutions could be sold in, you know, could be in three to six months. And some takes years and years of work. Uh, meaning that if it's a big strategic play. Right. If it's a transformational yeah. deal, then and, so is and it, have different phases, right? So yeah. you can have a single plan. Yeah. Is it safe to say, you know, your deal sizes are six and seven figures, depending on how long it is and how big it is? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. So talk about that long sales cycle, right? Where you, you said it's years and years. Like, what is it that takes years and years? Like, I mean, I think conceptually we know, but I, I'd love to try and put thoughts around it based on your experience. Well, let's say you work with a CPG company, mm -hmm. a global CPG company, which is consumer packaged goods. So they typically have locations all around the US, Canada, maybe all around the world. All these locations, 
have not been built as greenfield facilities. In a lot of cases, companies just buy smaller um, smaller manufacturers and they try to integrate them. So that creates a, a lot of silos, not only around just the corporate governance or um, just corporate initiatives, but also just how things are riding on the shop floor. You can have a PLC that was you know, placed there probably 30 years ago and that PLC still runs, but it's not up to date. So it communicates in different standards and protocols. And so there is no visibility on the, on the let's say, corporate side of what's happening in the plan. So they, they, they get those Excel reports maybe once a month or maybe every week on how the production runs down, but there is no visibility. And so in order, to, you can't just run before you can crawl. And, and we use that phrase a lot, right? So crawl, walk, run. So you need to put some basic infrastructure in place before you can take somebody on a digital transformation journey. And that means that typically you would select a few plans, let's say in your sales cycle, you would select a few plans, you would do a proof of concept or a pilot project, but that pilot project could take you a couple of years because you need to collect data. You need to, to make sure that you are actually making improvements to the bottom line, to um, the top line, to the operations of each company. And that kind of, you know, if you look at it from the deal cycle perspective, that's going to take you years. How do you but when he says when he says it's going to take years, Richard? Yes. The skeptic and scaredy, oh, scaredy cat, scaredy cat, and me. Yes, is like the sales cycle should also include how many reps will actually put this deal, you know, to fruition. Because if it's taking years, this is nothing against Vlad, and I'd love to hear Vlad's opinion, but. The average tenure of an account executive is not years and years and years at one particular place. So it's almost like if I'm opening up these accounts and getting pilots started, I'm kind of getting screwed versus if I'm coming in later and Vlad's already done four years worth of work and I take over the deal and bring it on home to the finish line. No, true, false. I mean, I agree with you. I, my question is, Scott, you have no patience for this. <laughs> oh, I, I no, of course not. This is why my brain automatically though goes towards the end, where I'm like, I might have patience to do this if Vlad has done four years of work and I do the last one and a half. Right. So, but that also assumes that Vlad leaves, which I don't know that in this kind of a deal, people leave, right, Vlad? Yeah, I, I would say we have our information solutions team. And this is kind of, we have probably 100, 150 sellers across North America. So everyone has been with the company for a long time. So we hire new people and people come on board every, every once in a while, but typically people don't leave, especially in the middle of that um, sell cycle that takes years and years. Like there's, there's no point in living because you are making progress and you know, typically you know that you're making progress if you add more plans or if you expand your original pilot to to minimal locations. Scott, on the on the other hand of this, there's a lot of stability in the multi-year deal cycle. Right? You're, you know, you're not going to Is there? Is there stability in it? I don't know. Maybe there is. Somebody show me data that shows uh, you know, 
account executives in these big long sales cycles have four and five years of average tenure instead of a year and a half. And I'll believe you. I think that's what Vlad's saying, yeah. though, is people come and they know, right? I also think it meets the hiring process. This, to me, feels like a much more strategic hiring process, right? Like, Vlad, if you can, if you can share, how long was your hiring process there? I, I think, again, I, I would break it down into pieces. So one was just getting introduced to the people in the company and just maybe a segue, but any job I found in, in Canada was for insider connections. So meaning that I would either be connected to somebody within the company or I would reach out to somebody in the company and establish that relationship and then talk to more people within the company. So before I come to any, in my past, before I would come to any interview, I would already know a few people on the team or, you know, in that uh, business. Is that you reaching out? Is that you sort of saying, hey, I'm going to try and target this company and get to know these people? Or is it, hey, we're going to start to put you through the process, Vlad, and then you start to be, you know, proactive in that regards? So in this particular case, I have a good friend who works for the company and he he had started a couple of years before he, I, I went into this hiring process. And at some point he reached out to me and said, hey, I think there is an opening and, um, you know, you might be a good fit for it. So we spent, you know, several hours talking about it. I, I would, I was trying to understand how the company operates and at certain points say, yeah, it, it sounds like, you know, a great company to work for. And, um, sounds like the leadership is great. So why, you know, how, how should I get started essentially? And he connected me with the, my hiring manager, who is my, my manager, um, Got it. And uh, we had informal conversations, several informal conversations, and I did some, um, let's say, prep up work to show that I could do the job, even though formally I haven't had an enterprise selling role in my past, right? So I just had to be strategic about it and and, and invest some time, which I think paid off um, big times today. So that's that was kind of my next question of, how did you get to this enterprise level, right? Because everybody wants this level of experience from people, but it sounds like, you know, you had the right connections, which is great. Like this is why we network and and those kinds of things, correct? I wouldn't say it was it was just networking. I, I think I've just over time, and and again, I I, I made a career change uh, some time ago, so it wasn't I wasn't I haven't been selling all my life long, so I've, I've been introduced to sales pretty early on, and then I kind of developed a bit of a hater trait for different reasons, but just just based on my background and where I grew up. So sales was not perceived as, as a noble profession or as a profession at all. Um, and so at some point I, I stopped trying to pursue sales and went to do a whole bunch of other things. But um, when it came, came to Rockwell, or started interviewing for Rockwell, I think I had a pretty solid background and I also spent, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of hours just doing self-education and reading books and articles and being part of TNS and a, a whole bunch of other communities. So I had built out that foundation where it was confident that if I would walk into 
an enterprise selling role, then I would be successful in it. But it, but it, it also goes back to confidence, just being a confident person in general, which I had to work on. So how do you, let's talk about that and dig into that for a little bit. So how do you specifically work on confidence? I agree with you. I, to me, how somebody feels about themselves, how they, how they think <clears throat> about their product, about their salesmanship, all that kind of stuff. That, that thing matters more than anything else to me. You know, your mindset and how good you feel directly correlates to your performance. performance. And yet it's the hardest thing to work on, really. It's not like you can just go read one thing and then, oh, I make this change, right? So I'm, I'm always curious to know how people work on their confidence. Do you want a long story or a short story? <laughs> well, give me the short story because it's a short podcast, you know? <laughs> I think a lot of it just, you know, all the things related to confidence come from our upbringing, come from our childhood. And a lot of insecurities, I think, and, and this is based on my conversation with my therapist, um, is based on, you know, what we were or were not introduced to when we were uh, kids. And um, for a long time, I wasn't really that confident. And the big changes that I made was starting to work out regularly, just being, um, you know, just developing discipline. Hey, I don't want to work out today, but I will still do that because um, I know that it's going to pay off in the future. A big part of my thing was also just working with a therapist and just digging deeper into, hey, what are the things that you're afraid of and why are you afraid of them? And even though I could do that on my own, I think having that somebody else asking you critical questions where you don't need to put up guards or you don't need to put up de internal defenses, it kind of helps you to uh, go through the process and just even for yourself understand a little bit better how you function and Scott, why the Scott, this yeah. sound familiar to you, buddy? Sound like somebody else. Well, I was just thinking that the key to a successful career in sales is fixing all the damage that your parents did to you. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's basically what I'm hearing. That, that yeah. might be the title of the show. So, <laughs> um, and so not only, I, I would say just not only parents, but also your surroundings. Because again, we all know we are the average of five people who surround us. And in some cases, you know, I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood, whatever it was like, the whole country was rough. And um, so, yeah, you, some of that damage was done when I was, you know, when I was bullied in, in school and um, it, it created those insecurities. So for me, the process was only not only working out, but also doing martial arts and just building up that internal confidence. I don't want to fight anyone on the streets, but I know if I have to, I will be able to push back and, and, and defend myself and my family. So I got, I got two questions. One is, okay, how bad was that? Was that like a big issue? But my first question is, if you're comfortable sharing, and, and I've been down this path too of, of mental health, when did, like, what was the moment that you realized, okay, I need to go work on this part of me? Because that's often the hard part. Like, I think so many people know that this is the problem. They know they should go do something. 
but there's a hurdle to admit that they're going to go do it. Like, was there a moment where you were like, okay, enough is enough? I think uh, when I was trying to date a girl in, in high school and she kept turning me down and, and I kind of became a bit obsessive about that relationship. And uh, I think that was one of the turning points where it said, hey, I, I need to be comfortable um, talking to girls at that point, right? So I was like 17, 18. And, and um, I think just trying to approach people, you know, trying to approach um, girls on the street and just starting those conversations and not bleeding anywhere, but just overcoming that um, self-resistance. I think that was a big, and I realized I can't do that, right? So I, I, well, I couldn't do that back in the days. And then I have to try to understand how to do that and, and look at other, you know, my friends, how they would do it. And eventually that, you know, starting with dating, essentially, but eventually it turned into uh, a bigger thing where I had to ask people for money when I was running my consulting company. And uh, that was, you know, one of the hardest things that I had to do is like, hey, give me some money for the work that I might successfully deliver in the future. That's I, I love the fact that you were 17 or 18 and you realized you needed some support, but no matter what the reason was, like that's a very self-aware teenager. That's very oh, no, it's it's just it was really that situational, but I think it was it gave me the push and, and gave me a little bit of self-confidence to to continue to do that. And and then I think the big change was probably when I was changing careers, going from software engineering to consulting to sales. That's when I realized, hey. If, if I'm not confident, nothing is going to happen. Did you choose sales? Did you know you were going to go into sales or, you know, or were you one of those people who like tried a whole bunch of other things, um, you know, before you did it? I started selling, you know, like had, uh, so short story, I got introduced by a friend when I was 14. I got, um, a friend of mine approached me and said, hey, you know, you can sell hot corn, right? So you collect the corn corps, you you boil them, you cook them, and then you bring them in and sell them. And um, I, I I didn't even think about it, even though I was selling fruit and veggies from, from our garden before that uh, on the market, sort of like farmer's market. And then I did that. I went, you know, actually, I think, well, not I think, but we stole a whole bunch of pork from the till we boiled it and and then we sold it and it was um, it was great because I realized that a lot of other people other sellers who were selling corn they were standing in the same spot so what I did I, I picked up a bicycle I had two large buckets of corn I put them and I just went around the farm market and said hey I was started shouting hot corn hot corn and and people you know they didn't need to do extra work to leave their workplace because they could get that hot corn, corn, um, corn in the cob right off um, my bike. So that was probably, you know, my introduction to sales. But that's that, I love the fact that you started out selling corn and now you sell huge six and seven figure <laughs> multi-year deals, right? Like who would have thought that that's where you would end up? That's amazing, man. That's a really, really cool story. So all right, I'm going to let Scott, um, jump in and ask some more questions. I want to know more about the popcorn selling. <laughs> popcorn think, selling? Yeah. Did you go door to door? Did you post up and do this? And is there <clears throat> anything that transferred over 
I mean, I, th- I would think that the getting over the fear of like prospecting or talking to people would be one thing, but what, what else did that do to kind of establish a baseline of, wow, maybe I want to be a salesperson. I think just understanding that there's always a need that I, I early on and I, I realized that you can sell anything essentially. If you have the desire to sell, it's another thing that you might have to use some uh, tactics and, and some of the tactics for sales, for example, in Russia were not really, I, I wasn't on, on, on board with them, like sleazy sales tactics. But there's always a need, and, and if you can, I think it all comes down to positioning. And for me, selling hot corn, standing next to another hot corn seller, I just couldn't take it because, hey, there's no, it's, it's a commodity. So why would someone come to me versus that other person? So I had to make myself um, stand out. And this was the way just, you know, take, taking up the bike and just going around the the Ross of, um, you know, just going around the farmer's market and, and shouting that just overcoming the fear that I might run into somebody I know who will look at me and say, uh, oh, what the hell are you doing? Because again, that that was, I, I think it goes back to cold calling, right? So what if I interrupt somebody? What if I, um, you know, what if somebody tells me to go, yeah, what if somebody tells you to scram or whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And and it's hey, there are enough people on the earth that you can find somebody who will buy a product if your product is good, right? And again, for hot corn, all it needs to be is hot and tasty, and 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 add a little bit of salt and and napkins, and there you go, you have your sale. Yeah, quick transaction there. But you did not have to go through pr- procurement. Yeah or legal or anything like that. Richard, you're on mute. Of course, that that would happen. I knew it would happen. Yeah, it's part of the show. He even has his coffee mug back there that says, Richard, you're on mute. Yeah. And, and it's the first time in what? I don't know if you've had- The first time in a while, Richard. You've been pretty good lately. I have been, I have been. So I just love the fact that that's not a four-year sales cycle, right? Like there's no, um, you know, that's the complete opposite of what you're doing. So, um, did you move, did you move right into enterprise sales from the beginning or did you start more transactional and move up? You moved up. Yeah. Essentially I started with, uh, again, I, I, I started with my consulting company, IT consulting. consulting. So my, my question for you, and I've, I've had this debate with people before is you think it's easier to do what you did or for somebody who's in an enterprise role to move back down towards mid-market SMB and that velocity? Which one do you think is easier? I think bottom-up is much easier. Why? Tell us why. I agree with you. Tell us why. I I don't know how many points I'll have, but let's start with prospecting. At SMB level, you have to be prospecting all the time. I mean, you have to be prospecting at, at the enterprise level, but the velocity of prospecting is much different. In SMB, you have to be prospecting all day, right? So you get somebody on the phone, you set up a call, you you close the deal. With enterprise, you still need to prospect, but you'll you'll call somebody, you set up a meeting, and then two years later, you'll probably close the deal 
and it's, it's going to involve 50 more people from that company that you still need to call on or email or re somehow reach to them. So I would say prospecting is a big one because if you have this muscle, if you're not afraid of picking up the phone, sending that email, reaching out LinkedIn and doing all the combo prospecting things, that that's a big part of it. The second one is just for the sheer nature of transactional deals, you get exposed to so many different people. You get to talk to so many different personas over time and personalities specifically. So you will start to understand how people function much, much faster than in an, in an enterprise role. And then the third one I would say is probably just uh, getting those quick successes that could get you addicted to, to sales, right? So if you have, hey, I spent you know, two hours prospecting and I closed the deal that would give me you know, I don't know, five hundred dollars yeah. commission. You get direct, you get direct, and rather immediate feedback. Hundred percent. And then you also know what the things you can improve on. So yeah. if you listen to your phone calls, or you listen to your Gong recordings, or chorus, or whatever, like you can improve so much faster than if you have a one meeting or five meetings a week with your customers, and then you have twenty-five meetings with your internal team yeah. to strategize and to build up a good, a good um, business case. Yeah. I really like your, that example that you're giving right now, as well as your second point about how you just have more opportunity to learn about people and how they think and how they operate because you have so many more at bats. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's great. Um, individual contributor for life or interest in leadership. Well, I've, I would say for sure, interest in leadership uh, before, um, again, before coming to sales, I was already, I had a career in, in, in software engineering and I was leading uh, quite a large team of people. So I kind of got addicted to that part as well. Um, so for sure, leadership is something that I want to pursue, but I also think that I still have a few things that I need to prove to myself, first of, first of all to be able to become a good leader for other salespeople. Because I think credibility to a certain extent, you still need to, if you walk in into the room of people who are selling multi-million dollar deals and you don't have that, you can't show for that. I mean, how are you going to relate to that? Yeah. And and the same in SMB, I think, unless you have solved for a while, like it's, it's very hard to become a good leader. You can be a manager for sure, you can move scratches around. Absolutely. But are you going to be a leader? Somebody who people are going to listen to and, and, and follow, not because you have that title, but because you have, you have been there, you have the conviction and you also can, can show that experience and you can teach them something, teach and coach. I think it's like with coaches, right? So you don't have to be, you don't have to be in the champions league in order to coach a Champions League team like Jurgen Klopp. But he had, I mean, he still was a Bundesliga player like at a, at a low level, but he was a professional. Yeah. So he, he went through all this process. Yeah, yeah. In fact, those types of people have often proven to be the best coaches, the people who've kind of had to grind through it and struggle through it and appreciate the success of it all, rather than the people who... We're at the top of the top 
and so many things came naturally to them and they're just like, why can't you just be perfect like I was, right? Name me one coach who was an outstanding player. I'm, I'm, I'm having really difficult. Well, they have to be, so I can, I can name people who were a coach who was an outstanding player. I can't name somebody who was an outstanding player and an yeah, outstanding coach. I mean. Right. Yeah. I'd have to dig real deep. I don't know that there, there is one. I, I'm sure there are. I'm just off the top of my head. I can't, I can't really tell. Richard, maybe you can. There, there's a couple of people. Um, if you're talking on a sports situation, um, I think Deion Sanders becoming that outstanding players becoming an outstanding coach. Uh, he coaches low level college football. He's becoming that. He's becoming that. I will right, we'll see. Uh, and Scott, I would, I would, I would venture to say that you are one of those people. So I'm putting you in the same because I, I only because I've you know known you so long and known your success and your history and your. Well, we're talking about we're talking about pro sports coaches, pro Richard. Sports, yeah. Not low, <laughs> not low level minor business success stories. Not not small transactional popcorn salespeople. Is that what I'm hearing? You no, say? no, no. Yeah, Vlad and I are not on the same level as the people uh, that we're talking about, as uh, much as we might like to be. <laughs> yeah, I I would agree. I don't think there's a lot of players that are amazing coaches. I mean. Steve but you look at the you look at the majority of people they were role players. Yes, Steve Kerr was one, is one of those people. Exactly. Phil Jackson was a role player. Yeah. Who achieved tons of success as a as a coach. Jurgen Klopp we're talking about. There's very very few, you know. I just found one, Vlad Zinedine Zidane. Oh yeah. No. Of France that, yeah. and Real Madrid. But this just took us a collective, you know, five minutes to to figure one out across all the different sports. But it's very, very rare. Yeah. Very rare. So yeah. I want to I know we gotta um uh, start to wrap. I've got one more question. I know Vlad, you want to ask us a, a question too, if you'd like. Um uh I want to give a quick shout out to um Sendoso Scratch Pad and Outreach for supporting and sponsoring uh surf and sales as well as the Serpent Sales Founder Edition, which is coming up in October at uh, Scott's Lake House for Founders, as well as the Serpent Sales regular event happening in November of this year and again in 23, which we haven't booked yet. We need to figure that out, Scott. Um, but I do have a question for you, Vlad, before you ask that one. Um, community. You talked very early in the show about finding a community, right? And, and for you, it sounds like that was a big piece of just you you have that growth mindset, right? I need to question myself to get better. How do you, how, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to find the right community, right? Like Thursday Night Sales is a pretty good one. Pavilion's out there, but you got to pay for that one. Modern Sales Pro is a great one if you're in the right role and you want that kind of, you know, email content. What kind of advice do you give to people, would you give to people to try and find the right community? Am I qualified? <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, um, I think it really depends on where you want to be in five years from now. And you got to surround yourself with people who are already there and find communities where you can get attached or you can get closer to these people, like with TNS, for example, right? So, I mean, I've, I've spent a ton of time on on just listening to Scott and, and Amy and, and Justin at the beginning. And then Richard, you know, I ran into you, I think, in uh, April, March, April 2020, when you when you were doing your NEAT, um, NEAT training. And um, it was, you know, uh, I think I actually 
got introduced to Scott on the same because I think he was DJing or um, MCing your um, one of your sessions. And um, yeah, it just just you know, I, I realized the value that hey, these are the people I can learn from, and I should start following them. And again, it you don't really need to find people who are in the same niche or in the same vertical or in the same job function because I think you know with LinkedIn and Twitter and all the other social media and books, you can get exposed to so many different people. But when it comes to community, I think just A, you should feel yourself comfortable within the community. And B, just, uh, you know, try a whole bunch of communities and see whatever, you know, you can join Pavilion and, and pay that monthly fee. And if you don't like it, just, just go find another community, not to say anything bad about Pavilion at all, I think. I'm not a member yet because I'm I'm already a member at a couple of other communities where um, I am paying money. So I'm not afraid. I think if you be okay to pay money, if you see the value, I think I would say that because it's an investment and um, it's an investment in yourself. And if you don't invest in yourself, it's, it's incredibly hard to improve because it's not only time, but also sometimes it takes, you know, money to buy a book or to, pay for the community. So I think just just be be okay to do that. In terms of finding, I think just Google probably or LinkedIn search is, is the best friend. Um, and, and then just joining and trying. Great, cool. Well, what, what questions do you have for us? What would you like to ask us? I'm sure you've got asked this question many, many times, but um, I'm just curious, how did you guys start with surf and sales? Because that is, you know, something that you tell the story, Richard, I've told the story before. Let's hear, let's hear you tell it. So, um, Scott and I were on a vacation with our families. We, um, we have two boys who are all within a year of each other. So there's four right. of them, and they get along. Like it's crazy. Like they don't see each other for a year and like instantly it's like cousins that they're, it's really fun. Um, are you a parent yet? I've got two boys, so I can totally relate. Yeah. Right. So you you understand the value of vacationing with another family, so yeah. that all the parenting, yes. uh, they all babysit each other at a certain point. So, so you, you can enjoy um, uh, an adult drink while yes. they're playing. Yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, so we were we were on the beach in Costa Rica, and um, we were walking back from the beach, and Scott turned to me and said, "Why is everybody got to go to to you know Nebraska for a sales conference? How come nobody does anything here?" and you know, as in typical Richard fashion, I just said, okay, why don't you, let's do it. You do it, figure it out. And that's all Scott kind of needs sometimes, he, you know, um, and, uh, and he did, he came back, <clears throat> came back from that vacation in November. And um, he sort of put some feelers out on LinkedIn to see if people would want to do it, to see what the interest was. And um, lo and behold, we were, you know, by May, we were doing our first surfing sales in, you know, five months time. Um, we also included our, our partner, Jeff Coleman, who is like the avid, you know, he, he lives in a pivot table for lack of a better phrase. Like he's that guy who's super organized and really does heavy stuff. And we couldn't do it without him for sure. So, um, Scott got Jeff to come on and do things and we've never really looked back. Um, we did the event and then. Later that year, I went to the Scott and I said, I think I'm doing a podcast. Barrows has told me to do one. Per your comment, Vlad, I, I have this imposter syndrome where I think I'm not good enough sometimes. And I was like, I, I, 
wow, to do that by myself is scary. So I, I talked to Scott, I was visiting him and, and, uh, and he, uh, I said, I think I'm doing this podcast and my idea is to do them and then drop them all like Netflix. And he loved that idea. And I was like, do you want to do it? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, what should we call it? And he's like, well, why don't we just call it Serpent Sales? And at first I was a little resistant because I didn't want it to be all tied together. And then in hindsight, it made sense so that we're not marketing like three different kinds of things. So, Oh, absolutely. That's, that's my version. Scott, did I leave anything out? I love oh, it. Oh man, you did good. Good explanation. Yeah, Can I ask good. one more question? Go, going back to Serpent Sales. Sure. Do you find that, I mean, you spend time teaching other people, but you also obviously hang out with the group and, and you, you're getting asked those questions. And maybe it's the same for TNS and Serpent Sales. It's very similar. Um, do you still find value from each event where you're not only just teaching the same material, but you actually can expand on that material based on the conversations and based on the experience that you had between those events or between those? Uh, oh, events? absolutely. Absolutely. A perfect example is we've had multiple founders come to the Serpent Sales Summit in Costa Rica, and some of them have said, you know, you should do this for just founders sometime and have a founder only session. So this October we're doing our first founders only session. So that was kind of born from feedback from the group and keep in mind also that we're growing and establishing relationships and those relationships can be fruitful for us. They can be deals or referrals or sources of, uh, you know, resource for us to get advice from and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you spend a week with super talented people in a, in a special place like Costa Rica and you're, you know, you're fast friends oftentimes. Um, <clears throat> so there's, there's a ton, a ton of value from it that we still get. And I think as long as we still have the energy for it, we'll probably keep doing it. Yeah. And I would, I would say it's like anything else. It's, it's, it's a lot like sales, like the sales, process is the same the sales conversation is different every time right i could sell the pepsi and coke and they'd be totally different conversations mm -hmm. they'd be a lot of similarities and they'd be totally different and so it's never stale it's never like a constant repeat of the same content um you know so it's interesting and i think i think there's something to be said too for anybody's whether it's thursday night sale the pavilion you know we've now had several people come two or three different times to Costa Rica. And so I don't, I, I bet it's as much, if not more about the relationships and the experience than it is the content. Not that the content is bad. They, people get, they come because they get great things out of it, but the relationships you build. Right. And um, as I, I always pointed as those in between moments, the moments that happen in between mm -hmm. uh, uh, a session you know, where you're just walking to the beach or you're just taking a quick break before the next session starts and over meals. And, and you know, that to me is where I think the value of any activity you do lies, right? It's fun to go to an event. It's the stuff in between that, that create that is the glue. Solved. I, I just need to find the time and also uh, the budget to come to one. Just needs... You no. just need to close one of these 10-year deal cycles. Right. We'll see you in 10 years, Vlad. 10 yeah, years. We'll yeah. 2032 <laughs> will be the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
We appreciate you spending some time with us, Vlad. And thanks everybody for listening to the Surf and Sales podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. So much fun, guys. Thank you.